Good afternoon and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode seven of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Amon Warman. I'm Hannah Flint. I'm Clarice Lockery. And this week, we've got a wealth of movie reviews to share with you. Dylan O'Brien will do anything for love. What you want to do, do for love. <laughs> I love how that's your I love how that's your go-to. It's like mine is I will do anything for love. That's mine. Oh, Very different. Interesting. <laughs> Clarice, what's your go-to? Yeah, definitely. Um, but I won't do that. Meatloaf. What won't Dylan and <laughs> Brian do? Uh, uh, hashtag You will not <laughs> he will not stay safe and stay in his colony. That's what he will not. He will risk everything. Okay. <laughs> this could be a long podcast if you keep interrupting each other by singing, and I'm totally okay with that. Uh, uh, so yeah, Dylan O'Brien will do anything for love, even if it means battling through some mutated massive insects in Love and Monsters on Netflix. We've got a ghost story double whammy courtesy of Shudder with the banishing and the power. And Kerry Mulligan is here to teach predatory nice guys a lesson in a film that has caused quite the debate amongst critics. It is, of course, Promising Young Women. Plus, in this week's hot take, after Francis McDormand and Anthony Hopkins failed to show up to win their battles at the Zoom ceremony, we ask, should nominees make an effort to attend award shows? But first, Clarice Hannah, speaking of the BAFTAs, what was your favorite BAFTA moment? Clarice. My favorite BAFTA moment was uh, after Pedro Pascal. <laughs> uh, I should have known this. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> he uh, introduced the, I think it was Best International Feature Award, and host Edith Bowman was like, Pedro, come back. <laughs> we love you, Pedro. And um, I just love Edith. I feel like that was such a relatable moment. She is a host of the people for the people. Yeah. I, I I think I love Edith Bowman because her whole career is pretty much, I mean, obviously started on Radio 1, but like films is so much part of what she does and what she celebrates and support, whether it's soundtracking the podcast or you know covering on Wittertainment with you, yeah. Clarice. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, it's nice to have, I think it's good to have presenters who actually have a vested interest in that. You know, I just, I, if it was Dermot O'Leary on their own, it would have, I don't know if it would have that same, felt like that authenticity. Although I do think, in a way, it's like, I think they needed someone who needs to be better writing that script. They need some comedians to work on that because it was very dry at time. And the canned laughter was very odd. Yeah. <laughs> Although I like that Buki Buckroad clearly didn't need any of it when she won E! Rising Star. Hearing that noise was so wonderful. Um, but what was my best bit? I think, yeah, I think my favourite bit was how um, Chloe Zhao has proven that... Um, you know, you don't need to get dressed up for awards ceremony. Sometimes you look like you're attending a meeting at 8 a.m. and that will have to do. <laughs> I am obsessed with her outfit because yeah. it was not just a flannel shirt, which is what she's been wearing to some of the other award ceremonies. There was some sort of, there was an overall situation. And I, was it pinafores? Was it overalls? Like, stand up, Chloe, let's see. I was yelling at the screen, please stand up, let me know what the outfit is, which I know was probably the opposite of what she was intending by wearing that, because I'm sure it's sort of a statement of a, you know, ask, what is it, ask her more, like, do not ask yeah. me about what I'm wearing, but I'm sorry, Chloe, you looked great, you looked fantastic, yeah. and I thought it was a great outfit. Yeah, no. I did not expect to go to Clarice's costume corner so early in the pod, but I'm <laughs> glad that we are. 
Uh, you mentioned it, Hannah. My favorite moment was the Buki Bukwai when uh, that reaction was everything. And I'm so excited to see what she does uh, in the future. She really uh, gave a great performance in Rocks, which I think should have won. I, I would have liked it to have won more than it did on the night. Um, but Rox is one of, one of my favorite films of the past few months or so. Uh, and I'm glad that she in particular uh, was awarded that very well-deserved. Uh, but enough BAFTA chat. It's time for some movie chat. And we are going to begin with Love and Monsters. The day of the monster uprising was the day I lost everyone. Only a small fraction of humanity survived to move underground. I've been scanning for Amy the entire time. And now, I finally found her. Joel! Hey! Joel! Amy, is that you? Oh my god! Hey! How far away is Amy's colony? 85 miles. It's an impossible journey. Everything will try to kill you. Don't fight, just run and hide. Uh, okay. Love is in the air! And so are a lot of killer insects. <laughs> so Love and Monsters is set seven years after the monster apocalypse and it stars Dylan O'Brien as Joel Dawson, who along with the rest of humanity has been living underground ever since giant creatures took control of the land. And after reconnecting over the radio with his high school girlfriend, Amy, played by Jessica Henwick of Iron Fist fame, uh, who is now 80 miles away at a coastal colony Joel begins to fall for her all over again and realizes that there's nothing left for him underground and decides to venture out to Amy despite all the dangerous monsters that stand in his way. Aww. Aww. How romantic. Hannah, what was your thoughts? Oh, it's just so delightful. I've got such a soft spot for Dylan O'Brien. I think he's just such a likable, <laughs> cute person. I just want to wrap up and I want to put him in my pocket. I want to keep him there <laughs> and protect him all costs. And, and, and the thing is, he's he's had a really, because you know he did the Maze Runner, but he mm -hmm. had a massive injury on that and it literally yeah. took him out. And he was so, he had to, had this whole recovery process just to see him do these like action roles again. It's like, oh yes, you run, you fight. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I love any story that has a man and a dog on a journey. <laughs> and this one really served up uh, a man and dog story for the, for the ages. Um, I love the way that like he kind of bonded with this boy and oh my god this dog I was like trying to find out what the name of the real dog is on the real life what's the name it's, there's two dogs did it there's two so one's called Hero and one's called Dodge and they're both very good boys they are very <laughs> I'm so interested by that because they had a like boy in the film has a very distinctive blonde paw Whereas his whole body's red. Yeah. What do you think happened there? Well, my, so I was reading an interview because I just wanted to know who played the dogs immediately. And because <laughs> usually, I usually on any film like this, there will be multiple dogs because they have, you need different temperaments for, for a dog that can do the stunt scenes and a dog that can do like the still <laughs> look at the actor scenes. So one dog's wow. doing one thing and there's kind of like the on camera face dog and the mm. the running around and jumping dog and they were saying that <laughs> they had to be really careful about not bonding with the dogs too much the director had to not play with the dog because that meant mm. that when they were trying to do takes the dog would be looking at him and not at Dylan O'Brien <laughs> but apparently Dylan O'Brien was also <laughs> playing with the dogs all the time which is just really sweet <laughs> yeah try and stop me I'd be banned from that set um <laughs> I thought it was a really interesting take 
on the kind of um, apocalypse monster. I loved Eight Legged Freaks a few years, like quite a few years ago with um, David Arquette. So I'm really, I'm really into this kind of B movie horror vibe. But I think it was so sweet, and I love the fact that there wasn't really anyone. You know, he is this. He is not an action hero. Like the point of is that he's actually just the guy who makes minestrone. He he's good on the radio, and he hasn't found his like true love because she's obviously going away. He's had everyone's going through tragedy. But I love that the the colony that he's in. Normally, you have like uh, oh, there's stress, there's paranoia, there's like tension between the people living in a bunker together. It's like they don't like they the weakest link. He's got to go, and it felt like no, they all love each other, and it felt so uh, I suppose refreshing to have that. Um, yeah I thought it was really I thought the action was good I thought the monsters looked amazing I love the kind of ideas that they did with that how they mutated and how that kind of manifested um, I like that it wasn't all kind of monsters are bad <laughs> kill them all <laughs> vibe it was a really nice like it felt just like such a humanitarian sort of film but like also really like environmentalist as well Um yeah, I think yeah, I think Dylan is such a charismatically relatable. Loved Michael Rooker in it as Clyde Dutton, who was a survival expert, and I loved his like little um, sidekick um, Minnow, played by Ariana Greenblatt. She was so adorable and great. So yeah, top 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 dog, top notch. <laughs> <laughs> so I interviewed the cast of Maze Runner for the last movie. And so I, yeah. I hadn't seen the movies before. I sat down and I watched them all, and I watched a bit of Teen Wolf, <laughs> and and you know he's he's Dylan O'Brien is good in those but you know sort of doesn't really have much to work with yeah mm. and so I'll be honest I didn't go in with like any particular expectations <laughs> of what it would be like to interview Dylan <laughs> O'Brien I thought it was just gonna be like kind of a bit boring because he's probably over it I'm over it we're all over it <laughs> But honestly, like 30 seconds in, I was like, this guy is incredibly like cool and charismatic and Mm. funny. And he made such a like instant good impression of just seeming like a smart guy. And so ever since then, I've been like, I'm wondering what he's going to do next. Like, I really hope he he gets to be in the right roles. And I know we were talking about Tom Holland previously, you know, him sort of doing the slight mistake of after a massive franchise franchise going for the the darkest the grittiest like mm. i'm not i'm not spider-man anymore baby <laughs> <I'm undressed. laughs> and, and what i really love about love and monsters is it, it feels like the perfect role for him right now because mm. he's not having to push so up like far outside of his comfort zone he's able to to sort of play around with his charisma to play around with that sort of that natural likability that he had in the franchise movies and and but it but it is a slightly more mature movie and what I really loved about it is is kind of how you kind of touched on this that it's all about love like the whole film is just about like the fact that love comes in many different forms there's romantic Mm. love there's the way that all the people in the bunker love each other and when he decides to go on this mission they're like you're gonna die dude (laughs) but (laughs) we love you and we support you and I was so like I it it makes me really happy to see like all these people just saying we I love you to in a non-romantic context in a movie Mm. like this I thought it was really nice and and then yeah when he meets Michael Rooker's character and Ariana Greenblatt's character like there's a there's a form of love there as well because the way that they they protect him and they teach him and 
it's just yeah it's it I was so struck I was so struck by like this is a weirdly beautiful movie that I was not expecting it to be that deep because it's a monster it's a movie about large insects mm. <laughs> trying to kill people and I also yeah I enjoyed the creature design as well it felt very like gnarly b-movie like pretty like severely gross looking monsters that was fun yeah yeah Yeah, now I again fully agree with all of that I think in many ways one of the ultimate tests for an actor is holding the screen on your own or with an animal Mm. and Dylan O'Brien passes that test with flying colors he's very very charismatic Uh, although I do feel that the introduction of Michael Rooker, uh, Michael Rooker's character came at the perfect time. And it was so funny, mm. you know, uh, Michael Rooker, he's playing a dad-like figure to these two kids, but he's not actually their dad. And the line which kept running through my mind was that line in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Like, they may have been your, your father, but he wasn't your dad. Yeah. He's Mary Poppins. He's Mary Poppins. <laughs> So, so yeah, uh, but he was really, really great. Um, I just loved that all of the big emotional moments landed and felt earned. Yeah. Even though you could probably sort of tell if you've watched the, you know, the amount of films that we have that you sort of know what they're maybe trying to do. When it came, you're like, yep, I felt that. The, the, the moment where he talks to the robot felt that. The moment where he uh, sort of, first begins to become more of an action-esque hero. Felt that. Very, very cool. Stuff like that is really, really good. And I really love the connection between uh, him and Amy, uh, played by Jessica Henwick. Uh, Jessica Henwick is someone I've always been a fan of, even when Iron Fist wasn't very good. She was very good. And so I'm glad she's getting... (laughs) Right. (laughs) No, no, it's really not because, like, you know... Iron Fist, the first season was, you know, one of the worst things I've ever watched. Uh, and then the second season was much, much better, mainly because they focused on Jessica Henwick's character and the way in which they left that character. Like, I was interested to see where they were going to go with her. I actually still think that they left a lot of money on the table not doing a Daughters of the Dragon show with her and uh, Misty Knight, uh, which is just right, right there. But yeah. I'm getting sidetracked here. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, just on that note, but, uh, I'm currently reading uh, The Heroes for Hire run of civil oh, cool. war civil war where it's misty khalid and like black cat and i'm like give me this female team up make it 18 very, very cool. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah i really you know i'd heard really good things about this one but i was not expecting to love it as much as i did yeah. and i do love this movie mm. uh so it is on that note a stream for me hannah yeah definitely stream you know I just want to when you Clarice when you're talking about love I thought one thing I also really liked about the relationship with Dylan and Amy was that you know they haven't seen each other for seven years and like he's obviously obsessed because he's got no one else around and then it's kind of like the idea that he hasn't even thought of the possibility that she's had seven years and she's had other people and I thought it was handled in such a respectful way and it was like oh he's not being weird he's not being weird about it it's like (laughs) oh yeah no that he can accept it and he's like oh actually oh my god that's so bad of me that I just just made these assumptions and I feel like in another movie it would have been oh she's just dead to me I can't believe she just didn't hang around for me my whole life (laughs) you know I just feel like oh it's so nice 
to see that and I thought that was like three or four so yeah sorry uh, that was a little a little addendum <laughs> um, but yeah good, def- good allyship def- yeah we love we love allies um and yeah no definitely stream um here for it love it yeah a stream i'm a dylan o'brien stan i don't know what to say i'm in i'm gonna watch Jingle. he's cool he's a cool actor he's very charismatic on my youtube i've put all my old junkets and i did a couple of those maze runner ones and like there's one of dylan o'brien i saw it's got like the most views People love Dylan O'Brien. He's, yeah, he's just, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, he's a very intense fandom. <laughs> and he's got three more fans in it. <laughs> Congratulations, Dylan. I hope you have. <laughs> and so we go from monsters to ghosts with a shudder double bill the banishing and the power. Dear God. Thank you for bringing us together as a family. I hope you're both settling in well. Yes, thank you, Father. I'll make it a home in every room. Amen. Over there is bedroom. That is the living room. And this is the dining room. What's this room? You're not to go there. You're forbidden. So that was the trailer for The Banishing. And now... The trailer for the power. I love working nights. It can get up to all sorts. Bit of dark, won't it? Yeah. What is that smell? It's like it's burning. Are you scared of something? (gasps) Who did that? Something chased me to the basement. When I looked, there was no one there. Are you just making this up? No, I'm not making it up. A nurse must give of herself entirely. Sacrifice. How much are you willing to give? Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, especially when they're in spectral form. We're looking at two ghost stories available on horror streaming service Shudder from British filmmakers. First up, it's The Banishing, uh, directed by Christopher Smith, written by David Betton, Ray Bogdanovich and Dean Lyons, and it's set in the 1930s, starring Jessica Brown Fidley as a wife of a young vicar, contending with a terrifying presence in their country home that she and her daughter have moved into with her husband. And also, apparently, it's supposed to be like the most haunted house in England. We'll get into that later. The second film is... Uh, is The Power, written and directed by Karina Faith. It's set in 1970s East London at an infirmary where trainee nurse Val, played by Rose Williams, has to contend with malevolent forces on a night shift during a blackout. So uh, we want to talk about these together because obviously very similar, uh, great similarities. We've both watched them. Um, Very, very different films. So Clarice, What's your thoughts? Did you want to go in on one, two, or are you just going to go in all together? Yeah, I think, to be fair, I I've, I've much preferred The Power. I think I really connected to The Power. I loved it. I was terrified mm-hmm. by it. I, this is really embarrassing to say I had to sleep with the light on because I got <laughs> really scared. I am such a baby. But this is the thing. I'm usually not too scared by horror movies, but when they do manage to scare me, it's like my brain starts exploding and there's there's just sleep demons everywhere all night. <laughs> so that's a great compliment to the power that it really got me. I think the banishing was I think it was it was 
I don't know. I feel very mixed about it because there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. I, I liked the thematic through line about religious hypocrisy, especially because it's set in the late 1930s and it's discussing the way that the the church were yeah pretty much allies of hitler for uh, a really you ashamedly long time like it's sort of it's been quite neatly covered up but you look at it throughout the history of of the late 1930s and world war ii and a lot of the the church was basically propping up the nazis um mm. so i really liked to i liked seeing a film that went in on that theme and, and explored it uh I think it's just the horror aspect to me. It felt very familiar. It's so many of the scenes and scares were like, oh, this is like the others. There was a lot of stuff that seemed really reminiscent of the others to me and that that almost Spanish style horror. Mm. I mean, there is a scene where <laughs> she's talking to her daughter and she's like, you're not my mother. And it was just like, this is the same as the but I am your daughter. <laughs> so I think that's the thing that the scares didn't quite get me because it just felt like it felt quite template-y. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, with, with the power of what I really loved about it is like it, it, the, all the greatest horrors to me find a way to to express something real and relatable and like something baseline about human experience through these purely like the the horror language and and the power you know without without getting specific and giving things away the power is about sexual assault and and every aspect of the horror element every aspect of supernatural element comes back to that central theme and it's so clever in that way and so powerful in that way because you know sometimes when we're talking about subjects they're sensitive and obviously there's a film we're going to be talking about in a minute that also sort of does this (laughs) when you're talking about something you know that is so personal and devastating that it's oftentimes difficult to put into words I think finding a medium like this where you can you can you can talk about it through like ghosts and possession and and exorcism and and it, it becomes this like really interesting outlet to to explore it and to explore the feelings about it to explore the pain and the agony and the the desire for retribution i've tried not to give too many things away (laughs) it's it's a really really good story as well it's a really like beautifully i was so struck by it i i really loved the power um and yeah it scared the fucking shit out of me i can't believe it I think I'm very scared of abandoned hospitals. I've been to like one and I was like, mm, not doing that again. <laughs> There's already a deep-seated trauma in you to bring out a scare to the highest level. Amon, we know that you're a scary cat. How did you, were you okay? Were you with the lights on? Were you, did you watch in the daytime? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I watch films in the dark all the time. I'm a, I'm a hardened individual. I mean, I, I, I don't know what, no, I'm joking. Uh, no, <laughs> both of these films... Uh, scared me in different ways but I do think uh, I'm in agreement with Clarice in that the power is the superior horror film um, I think you know the the performances uh, in both are great the banishing uh, has Sean Harris doing his Sean Harris Mission Impossible <laughs> PP register thing hair, talking like this the wig the you're like Mad Hatter wig yeah beautiful <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> so I, I enjoyed that. But yeah, Clarice, you know, nailed it in that the power really uh, has the horror and it has the uh, sort of storytelling, which, um, you know, had had strong you know themes back then, but also is more than relevant to today's world. And I think the banishing is not aiming for that, but like with 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 you look at the best horror um that we've seen in recent times, you think about Get Out, you think about His House, you think about Blind Manor. These films or these TV shows really do sort of bring it to the modern world in a really interesting way that the banishing just didn't for me. Um, but the power, I I I think it's a really strong debut from 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 Karina Faith, uh, which I really. Uh, enjoyed in so much as you can enjoy a horror. <laughs> I think you know Rose Rose Williams uh, was fantastic as the nurse who sort of you know is the sort of lead uh, sort of protagonist of of this film as she you know unravels as the course of this uh, as as the night uh, goes on. Uh, there, there's a sequence in which she gets possessed, which is among one of the most impressive physical feats of acting I've seen all year. It's it's disturbing but very, very effective. Uh, I think Rose Williams is great. Uh, I really like the score in The Power as well by uh, Gazelle Twin and Max DeWardner, which is full of synths and eerie vocals. Uh, that's very effective. I would say that some of the dialogue in the final minutes of The Power is very on the nose in a very needless way. And that sort of momentarily take, took me out of the movie. Uh, but on, on the whole, I thought it was excellent. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. Mm, mm. Yeah, uh, I definitely think The Power is a far superior movie to The Banishing. And I think, you know, it's kind of got a very clear feminist message. You know, it's interesting. I, I read like a kind of um, director's note from Karina Faith and she said, all these ghost stories are always about women. And then suddenly they kind of, you know, it's up to the person that they're terrorizing to work out why they're so mad. And then it's fix it. And then suddenly they're at peace. And then it's kind of like Karina was like, yeah, I just don't think in this day and age people feel peace after being wronged, you know. And I think it's really interesting the way they explored that. Um, mm. I think definitely I really enjoyed the authenticity of that setting. It looked like I loved mm. the hotel, uh, hotel, hospital location. <laughs> it's hotel. Yeah. No, I love the hospital. <laughs> I love the costume. I love the fact that the nurses and it was East London, so you had like working class girls. I thought Emma Rigby was really great. I love, I think she, you know, she's, I think sometimes she can be quite hit and miss in some of the things that she's in, because I think she's got like mm -hmm. a soapy background and I think she's still sometimes mm -hmm. caught up in that melodr melodramatic way of acting. But I think in this, she was actually really good. Um, Bem and Solo Ikumelo was in it as one of the nurses. I like that we had like Northern Irish nurses, West Indian nurses, Mitch Drake's nurses. It felt like, oh yeah. And then you've got the posh white guys who are the doctors. You know, it kind of <laughs> felt, you felt it. Um, I think, yeah. I think Rose, like you said, Amon, like her physical performance is, I think her physical performance really made it, made it an interesting thing to watch. You were kind of gripped by it. Um, the horror side of it, Actually, I just, I did, was not scared at all. I think I saw everything coming. I felt like, sometimes I felt like there was just too much space um, in a way that it, it kind of like, you could, you could, you know, you, I think a lot of times when you're watching a horror, you're like looking around, you're like, where's it going to come from? <laughs> I feel like, and mm -hmm, I feel like mm -hmm. maybe the editing, I would have felt, I would have felt the way 
um, felt a bit more kind of in my, oh God, like creeped out by it. Had there been a bit of sharp editing, maybe a bit of better camera work that didn't um, linger too much and not offer, I don't know, I like jump scares. So I felt like, and I just didn't feel, <laughs> I didn't really feel scared. Although I, I appreciated what it was trying to, I appreciate what it was trying to do. I just don't think it hit as hard as it could. Because of people like you, you you, you jump scare loving selves that I can't sleep at night. It's your fault. Yeah, oh, sorry. <laughs> but even if you didn't have jump scare scares, there's like a. I felt like I wanted to feel a bit uncomfortable and slightly disturbed, and maybe I'm just desensitized <laughs> to it. And maybe it's like I've got a very, I've got like you know a higher pit, like horror threshold. Oh, you um, absolutely do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, no, but. I think I, I, you know, I reviewed this film and I think I said like, you know, I think it's feminist message raged harder than the horror. Like, I think I got that. I like that element of it. Now the banishing, which I think is clear. I mean, clearly it felt like a completely different movie. And I half, half of me believes it's because it was made by men because, you know, the power written and directed by women, lots of women working it pretty much. Most of the characters were women, Mm -hmm. right? All the nurses and stuff, you know, you had a few other bits in this it was kind of Jessica Brown Findlay, who we know from Downton Abbey, and then her daughter, and then a kind of mute maid. But then it was pretty much men all around her. And I really felt, I felt that kind of like claustrophobic energy. Um, and I also felt like the, the, kind of, the, the kind of reason why the, this, this ghost is haunting, it just felt like just so um, cliched, like... It's like, okay, we've seen, I felt like I've seen this narrative so many times before. Um, and then, you know, and it, and it kind of, I just found it to be very predictable. Yeah. And again, I didn't find that it was that, I mean, it was, uh, I think some moments where it looked kind of eerie, but I think you, I think you clocked it, Clarice. It's quite derivative. It didn't really have, it didn't really have a signature for itself. And I think Karina had a very clear thing that she was trying to achieve. And even maybe she didn't quite get it there. Uh, I I think she nearly got it there. Whereas I think with this, the banishing, it was just a bit mundane. Um, uh, but, you know, Sean Harris, <laughs> he Sean did the most. Harris. You know, he, he really understood did. the assignment. <laughs> <laughs> really I'll, I'll, I'll just add one thing to that, because um, you're talking about sort of the casting of both of these films. And one of the things I loved about The Power is that it's a period movie, but there's still women of colour there. You know, if if you watch, you can watch, you know, hundreds of period movies and be convinced that black people just did not exist way back when, um, because people do not even want to cast them to, you know, have roles in the background. It's just all white all the time. And I look at The Banishing, and that is just another example of that, uh, whereas... Uh, the power, um, you know, actually had women of color in positions of power, not very much power, but positions of power. And that was nice to see in the period movie. That's just authentic. That's just like, yeah. that was East London. Women from the West Indies came over and they're in nurses roles. Same from Northern Ireland. They play, they had these jobs. And it's so right. It's like, it, it's not even about like, um, oh, just, you know, putting a person in the, in the role because we want to see it diverse. It's 
it's historically accurate. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's what I appreciate. Yeah. It wasn't shoehorned in. And telling like, that's you said about working class stories. Like that's the thing is because so many period pieces only want to focus on like the white upper class, like Downton Abbey types. And what? Then... So you mean that's why Jessica Brown Finley got cast in the Banshee? Because it only cares about Great. <laughs> <laughs> right. We, I love her. She's great. Star of Brave New World. <laughs> Stop trying to make Brave New World happen. It's not going to happen, Gretchen. She got it in. 35 um. minutes into the episode, she got it in. I'm going to make this a running joke where I just plug this not very good TV show. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so excited for this. Okay, so, um, so we've got two options here. Again, you can get these both on Shudder, which is a separate streaming service. So um, let's do uh, the banishing. Are we going to say stream or skip? I mean, probably skip. I did not enjoy it and there were interesting parts to it. But I think if you're already on Shudder, considering the selection that Shudder has, which is a mechanic <laughs> selection, I feel like there are probably other things you would be more interested in maybe like the power yeah, like the power. <laughs> yeah. okay you so your yours is go on then so it's the vanishing skip but stream the power because it is there we go mm -hmm. uh yeah i'm gonna follow uh that uh the banishing skip uh the one thing i the other thing i didn't mention about the banishing is that i found it to be a little bit incoherent with the storytelling um mm. and the power i've got the power it's a it's a stream <laughs> Uh, from me uh, uh yeah full house stream the power skip the banish banish the banishing <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of the power i had the great pleasure of interviewing the writer director corina faith about the film and i had a great time speaking to her about her excellent debut feature here's that chat me and corina faith we are delighted to be joined on the fade to black podcast by the writer director of the power corina faith how are you doing I'm great. Great. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, congratulations on the film. I really enjoyed it. What's been your favourite reaction to the film so far? Um, am I allowed to swear? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> somebody somebody uh, said, this film fucking slaps on all levels. <laughs> and, and I got a message from my producer going, that needs to be a poster. Um, yeah. And then there was another tweet that said something like, um, you know, the film's working when your partner is is screaming at the TV. Yeah, scream his face off. <laughs> so I quite like the kind of quite high energy responses that we've been getting. I love that. That is awesome. I, I really do hope that I see that on a bus or a poster <laughs> somewhere because that is it would be good, wouldn't fantastic. It? The yeah. power is interesting because like you're you got the ghost story elements and you got the real world um trappings of an assault survivor story and you're marrying those two elements. Which idea came first for you? Um I wanted to tell a ghost story. I was looking for territory that felt rich enough. Um, I read somewhere that a ghost story is often quite like a poem and I think that's true so that there's a, there's a kind of real simplicity but that often means that they feel like they should be a short film um, and it, I was finding it quite hard to find something with enough substance and meat on the bones to to drive a feature and to make it kind of rich enough for me and um, at the time it was like six years ago 
the really horrible real world horror stories of institutional abuse were breaking in this country um there was quite a few different um scandals that were coming out the hospital jimmy savile one being one of them and i was genuinely really sad and upset about those stories um and i felt that there was something ghostly about the idea of um voices not being heard and people being kind of lost in the system and unseen and that felt quite like a ghost um so the two things married up yeah absolutely um i like period movies but one of my regular criticisms of them is that you know if you watch certain movies certain period movies you can be convinced that black people just didn't exist uh, (laughs) back in the day um and this, you know, this is a period horror with a multicultural cast. And to me, that feels significant. It feels significant that we got uh, two black women who are in positions of authority uh, in this movie. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and making that decision uh, mm. rather than uh, sort of going uh, the, route, the route that many others have taken, which is basically not to pay any attention to that, really? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's in my, it's just where I reach for anyway in my the way I see things and my um, take on the world. I've always lived in really diverse areas in London and Bristol where I'm from. And so most of my shorts have actually featured lead roles for people, normal actors. So it just, it's natural. But then we looked at loads of archive. We did a lot of historical research and it was, I mean, it was massively diverse the hospital setting and the east end um i mean there'd already been so many waves of of um, immigrations of all kinds so to be absolutely realistic that's what we needed to do anyway plus um it was just really interesting because this is a story about power dynamics and different people the way they sit in that hospital, the way they sit in that power structure, um, everybody in there has a kind of different role in that or a different experience of that. So that was the other reason I thought it was important. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, we've got to talk about Rose Williams, who is fantastic <laughs> in this movie. Um, I know that you've been talking a lot about the scene where she gets possessed, which is a standout. What I want to know is how many takes of that did you do? It's a good question. Um, well... As you might have come across before, she learnt it like a dance. We choreographed it so she could kind of perform it broken down bit by bit. So mm-hmm. we did um, like half a day where we just filmed sections of it like that in a more, I suppose, controlled way. And she kept having to go through those bits. Although it, apart from the massive time pressure, so we never had time to do anything as much yeah. as we wanted to. <laughs> Um, it was also very exhausting for her, as you can imagine. So we couldn't just like, we couldn't go and go and go and go. But then the next day, um, I think she was feeling just a bit kind of restricted by that way of doing it. And um, we just, we were allowed to have two cameras that day, which we didn't most of the time have. Mm. Um, and she just went for it twice. And we just filmed the whole thing. Um on half of it, the, the side when it's in a particular area of the room. And um, actually, that is a lot of the stuff that went in in the end because that's where she was able to just... She had the choreography in her head, but she was totally in a different zone with the whole thing and just um, 
and just went to quite an extreme place with it, which is why it's so impactful, I think. Yeah. I mean, my follow-up to that was like, once you say cut after a scene like that, what is the, what's the atmosphere like? Do you prefer to stay in the moment or, or do you go another way? No, that's a really good question. It was, um, it was intense, the atmosphere for those days, because we're also kind of, we got an incredibly well, the, the cast and the crew and Mm. to watch somebody go into that space and put themselves out there so vulnerable and so extreme for your story and for everybody to witness that it's it is genuinely disturbing and you're just really worried for them and you want to know that they're okay by the end of it um but she was okay absolutely but she also did have to push herself to quite an odd place so um yeah I think we were all just like thank you are you okay (laughs) (laughs) I love the fact that this film has uh, a multicultural cast. And one of the actors who really stuck out to me was Shakira Rauman as a mm. Saba. I thought she was really great. What was the mm. audition process for that like? And what stood out to you about Shakira? Yeah, it's, it's really, it was a really tricky uh, casting process because she's almost completely silent character <laughs> for yeah. thematic reasons. So it was very... Um, it's not like she had a lot of speeches for us to go on, uh, but she is a really, uh, I mean, she's literally the opposite of of the part that she plays on screen. So it was obviously really important to have somebody really confident at such a young age to be taking on a role like that, really quite a lot of screen time. Um, only 12 years old, the people we were meeting. And she, she just has so much... Um, persona and natural energy and confidence that we just loved her for that um and then we gave her little improvisations to do like kind of hiding under a desk and filming her kind of response to imagining something coming to the room and she would just rolled with all of that and was great with it and kind of could still she was playing like really um really into her imagination still so um yeah we just loved her and we thought she was great and she was yeah, no, 100%. Um, this is your debut feature. Um, what's a big lesson that you learned making this one that you'll be taking into your future project? One really interesting thing was that um, we did a cut of the script, um, which worked, uh, but what you write and what kind of convinces a reader is quite often very different to how it feels when you edit it into a film that that was what a big learning curve for me I think um so there was a kind of dip in energy that wasn't really detectable in the script um that is something I would look out for that it it kind of particularly a really intense ride like this it really needs to ramp up in the right way um and if you stop and pause for exposition and that kind of thing it just it just falls apart um so that was an interesting learning curve but also we we had another editor come in at the end of the process and actually take a completely new look at the material and because they had no relationship with the process at all the shoot the script nothing they had some amazing ideas about how to reconfigure certain elements of it which I never would have been able to think of um so that is actually something I would probably really recommend to try again. I thought that was amazing because just somebody to be really detached um, in the best kind of way 
that was exciting. Also to, uh, I mean, we just didn't have the option because it was such a harshly tight shoot, as you can imagine, but um, to not stop exercising while you're filming because I had just such a terrible <laughs> back by the end of it, I could barely walk. <laughs> so we're asking the producers to factor in walk time and exercise time. Absolutely. That's a pro tip right there. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. You know, it's interesting, you know, sometimes I talk to directors and it becomes clear to me that sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. And you were talking about how, uh, you know, this is like a 25-day tight shoot. Um, was there anything in terms of you making the film where you had to adjust course and, and actually was for the better in terms of what your original plan was? Yeah. Um, well, we had, me and Laura Bellingham, the DP, had a strategy, uh, which was we had our ideal shot list, which we really carefully worked out. And I'm a big planner, so I wanted to go in there with everything completely ordered in my head and know exactly what every shot was going to be in every scene. And But pretty much because I knew I'd probably have to throw that list away as soon as, as, soon as we started. <laughs> so at least I'd have had that thought process. Um, so we, we came up with a visual style that meant um, if the worst came to the worst, which a few times it did, if we had to shoot the entire scene in one shot, that we could do that. Because the set was designed to cope with that. The visual language that was already set up would, would work with that. Um, so we tried to just shoot things really simply and try and get as much of the atmosphere of the surroundings into the shots and save um, slightly more complex stuff for just the more punchy scenes that needed it but not be overly fancy or complicated with the other things what is next for you i am uh working on another horror space project with one of the producers of this one rob watson um so hopefully that will come together um and i am currently writing on a, a netflix show that's writing um which is in Similar-ish space as well. I can't say so much about it, but um, but both genre projects. You're just forever trying to scare me, aren't you? <laughs> well, if I could do it again, then that would be something, wouldn't it? <laughs> Karina Faith, thank you so much for your time. It was really nice speaking to you. Thank you. Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? One, two, three, four. I thought we had a connection. Okay. How old am I? What are my hobbies? What's my name? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. Watch out, nice guys. Carrie Mulligan is on the prowl and she has some severe unresolved guilt and anger and trauma to take out on you. She's having a real bad time. <laughs> Promising Young Woman is Emerald Fennel's black comedy thriller, which follows Mulligan's Casey, a 30-something med school dropout who seeks to avenge the death of her best friend who was a victim of rape. She spends her nights feigning drunkness in clubs, allowing supposedly nice guys to take her to their homes and revealing her sobriety when they try to take advantage. And they always do. But an unexpected encounter is about to give Cassie a chance to right the wrongs from the past. Or not, maybe.
<laughs> hey, look, no spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> Does she? Does she not? Tune in. <laughs> Amon, what did you think? I really liked it. I know there's been a lot of sort of hot takes flying out in this film, but when I finished that, I was like, wow, that is an incredible writer-director debut. Um, and it doesn't feel like a debut at all. Emil Fennell really, really did it with this one. And, you know, I was just impressed by how uh, much commentary there is in this while it still manages to be entertaining. Like, it's got, you know, talk about the lack of justice for women. It's got talk about survivor's remorse. It's got talk about um, how doing nothing is to be complicit. Any one of those could be the basis for an entire movie on, on their own. This, all of that is in this movie. There's all of these spinning plates, there's all of these tonal shifts, but it works. And that is a mark of a really impressive writer-director for me. I cannot wait to see what Emma Fennell does. I know one of the things that she is doing is a Satana movie for DC, and that makes me very excited. Um, <laughs> but <Magic>. yeah, then... <laughs> right, I don't know anything about Satana. Part of the fact that she does card tricks, and I just want a whole movie of her just doing like close-up hand. <laughs> Close-up magic. Boop, boop, boop. Uh, <laughs> she also says all her spells backwards, which is like her thing. Um, and I'm very interested to see what they're going to do with it. But again, we're getting sidetracked. The other thing which I really love about this movie, predictably, and uh, it's about the only predictable thing in this movie, is that Kerry Mulligan bodied this role. Wow. She is incredible. And she's, you know, for a long time, she's been one of the most chameleonic actors we've had working today. And she proves it again here. The way that she switches personas on a dime, and the way that she communicates so much with just a look, she was just riveting to watch in this entire thing. And I completely loved her performance. She's getting nominated everywhere, and that is very well deserved. Um, and then just on a technical level, the, the production design is great. I really like Anthony Willis's score. I love that the uh, warped version of Britney Spears is toxic that we, that we heard in the trailer shows up in the film. I also like that this is like a, becoming a trend in horrors. You remember in the US trailer, they had that really creepy, creepy version of I Got Five on it, um, which made its way into the film as well. And I, I, I like that. It, it sort of suits the genre well. But if they, if, if, if they pull it off well, I think it's effective like it is here. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to speak much about the ending, but I, you know, I, I think some elements of it were far-fetched, but mostly it worked for me. And that is all I'm going to say about the ending for fear of spoiling uh, uh, too, too much more. But on the whole, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I'm wearing my Emerald Fennel t-shirt. Nice. Girls nice. <laughs> yeah. on top, yeah. shout out. Girls on top, shout out. I saw yours as well. Um, <laughs> oh. There you go. I love that for the purpose of this podcast, <laughs> you're like, what are you doing? We can't see this. <laughs> this is not interesting. Um, so... Um, it's 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 one of those things of promising young woman where I was like, oh yeah, this is good, <laughs> but then after the whole discourse since I've mm. seen it, I just feel like I just uh, in a way I feel so defensive of it because yeah. I I feel defensive of it in the sense of like I think too often it's not filmmakers' jobs to fulfill what you individually want from that movie mm -hmm. and. When I watched one of the, I, when I watched this film, and it reminded me of when I watched La La Land, right. <laughs> in that I wanted this fantasy. I wanted the fantasy of like they have this like rocky romance. You know, it kind of they kind of come break up, but you know they're ultimately going to get back together again. 
uh, but that's not real reality. That's not reality of it. And I think people, a lot of saw that trailer came out and they thought this is going to be this revenge fantasy thing. It's going to be Carrie Mulligan just like slit and wrist, you know, slitting mm-hmm. people's throats, blah, 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 and all that type of stuff. And then obviously when it, you kind of see it and you realize, no, that's not the story that we're telling. This is a kind of, there are obviously far-fetched elements of it, but this is a story that's grounded in reality. It feels like this is what, if someone actually did decide that they're gonna go out at night, pretend they're drunk and confront these men, the likelihood of them like kind of stabbing them or killing them, getting away with it to do it repeatedly would be ridiculous. But mm-hmm. I think she did what was in, I like the fact that she kind of, this was her way of of combating the helplessness that she feels about not being there for her friend who killed, like committed suicide and not being there with the rape when it happened. Like this is her way of kind of like atoning for that or trying to feel like she's doing something or making a change or trying to make it better because the system is not doing anything as we find out throughout this movie. So I really, I think, you know, watching it, I was like, I wanted it to, in a way it's like, I wanted it to go a certain way. But then I quickly realized this isn't going to go that certain way. And actually I'm just going to sit back and just let it myself kind of take it all in. And I think what I really took away from it was, yeah, that this, you know, we talked about with WandaVision about what grief can do. And I think Mm. this is a movie more about survivor's guilt and grief than it is about like this kind of white female rage. I mean, it's Mm. not about being angry. It's about being sad and being helpless. And I think Carrie Mulligan, you know, I think she's, you know, was there a review saying she was the weird choice? It's like, has anyone seen like shame? She was a hot mess in that. Like, I think she Mm. was perfect. I think she could do this role in her sleep and she did. Um, I love the fact that um, one of the things, you know, sorry to muscle in on Clarice's costume corner, but as someone who (laughs) loves a fluffy knit, I love that she was wearing like all these fluffy knits. I love that it's basically Mm -hmm. saying like, hey, you can look, you know, you might, you know, do hashtag outfit of the day and wear pinks and all this, but actually you can feel really all these dark emotions inside. It's all just a cover. Um, You know, it's a very white film. You know, I don't think it's trying to do, it's not trying to interrogate the intersection of that, even though, you know, you've got like uh, Laverne Cox in there and I can't remember the name of the actor, but he's, he was in Veep and he was in that Detroiters and he's like one person in it who's like a black man who's one of the people who is one of the nice guys, inverted commas. So it's not really mm-hmm. doing that. You know, it has the whitest scene I've ever seen in my life when they're singing <laughs> and Fatars is blind in the farm. And I was like, only white people would think they can, can get I... away with that in a shop. <laughs> and like, like, who does that? That was like, is this a fantasy now? Because I thought this was reality. But actually the reality is that white people think that they can get away with that. Can I just say... Because I, I remember you tweeted that, and I'm like, I've been so called out by this because I love that scene, but I recognize that I that's like my extreme whiteness coming through. That I was like, I love this. Bo Burnham's there. There are pop chips. There's Paris Hilton on the stereo. This is no, but the thing is, it's like, but I think it was in a way it works because this is about, you know, I think you know when it has conversations, this is all about like the privilege of whiteness Mm -hmm. but also the privilege of male whiteness over female whiteness and and actually it's kind of like you know I've seen some criticisms of it being you know it's supposed to be this girl boss thing it's like what film are you watching like I I, I've seen I I find it so odd or the idea that it's like a 
copaganda <laughs> film. Like, mm. what film did you watch? Because mm. that feels so distant to me. So anyway, I could go into, you know, we could have a whole hot take session about just literally <laughs> dissecting every single criticism. But mm. I think, you know, I think it was an assured um, debut. I think it had something to say. I thought it felt different. It felt fresh. Um, I, I thought it, um, I thought the soundtrack was amazing. Costume mm. was amazing. I love the supporting characters, Jennifer Coolidge, Clancy, um, what's Clancy his name? Brown. Clancy, Clancy Brown. Yeah. I love the fact that for all the nice guys, she cast all the nicest guys in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. and it felt, and, and I suppose just on a personal level, as someone who has had that experience of being so drunk that a guy takes advantage of me and feeling powerless. And actually the only reason it stopped was because a friend's sister came into the room. Like that affected me on such a level. So, so I felt what Cassie felt in this. And I really appreciate like, you know, that person who did that was a nice dude. Like not everyone who assaults people and who, who you know, who's a predator looks like Harvey Weinstein. It is the brothers, the doctors, the sons, the friends, the, you know, top lads banter. That is what, this is how it maintains. And I'm just so glad that this film tackled that head on. So, you know, I know it's not a perfect movie, but I think what it was trying to say, I think it was really well made. So, yeah, thank you very much, Emerald Fennell. And Kerry. <laughs> yeah, I, so I saw this in January for the first time and I've, I've just been thinking about it since because I, like, it, it honestly hit me like a truck, this movie. I sat afterwards and I just sat and I cried <laughs> for a bit because, you know, when you just watch something, you're like, I just need to have a really good cry about this because I am so thankful for all this, like, beautiful empowerment feminist cinema, like, you know, about you know the release and 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 gaining power and and you know doing all the right stuff and smashing the patriarchy but it's this sort of weird offshoot of all that that it makes me feel like a bad person sometimes because you go oh yeah I have there's been so many situations where I've not acted in the great empowering feminist way I've I've not dealt with things well I've acted out in in you know ultimately damaging ways and I felt so kind of validated by this movie to see a film that went hey like I see you <laughs> that mm -hmm. it's you know not everyone deals with stuff in the the great like healthy way and and it's the same with WandaVision like you were right with bringing it up Hannah like it's sometimes you just need something that goes okay like yeah you know it's not always gonna be it's not always gonna be great and this is a really really sad movie in that sense but I appreciated the sadness of it and I felt really validated by the sadness of this film and yeah which is again I, I that's why I don't really understand the girl boss stuff because like it's very clear what she's doing is not healthy and there's a really really great scene and my favorite scene in the movie is when she goes to meet Nina's mother mm. played by the sublime Molly Shannon just wonderful mm. and she tells Cassie like stop being a child like yeah. this is not nobody wants this this isn't good for Nina this isn't good for you this isn't good for me and and yeah, I just I just think we need this kind of stuff. We we need these kinds of movies to to appreciate that grief is a really corrupting force and that 
you like <laughs> you're not at this thing like you're not ultimately a failure for for not dealing with your trauma well which yeah. i i think yeah. is the sort of like this weird sort of underlying thing with with the sort of girl boss mantra is you have to you have to deal with everything correctly and always stand up to the patriarchy otherwise i don't know you're so yeah you suck you're like a bad woman or something uh so yeah i i love that i love the aesthetics and it's so interesting watching everyone try to to like interrogate why there's all the pink and the millennials shit and it's like there is a purpose to it but also like that's just that's normal to me yeah like that's what my world looks like it's pink and it's Paris Hilton is playing <laughs> so I kind of like that as well because it's like and it is like Hannah you touched on this is this idea that 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 doesn't change like the human experience just because there is this aesthetic like it, a, a person's life is as deep and complicated as flawed even if they are wearing a fluffy pink jumper so mm. yeah I'm sorry, I could talk so long about that. I have pink hair, but I have issues. Exactly. <laughs> like, hey, like, I love pink everything, but also I have yeah. depression. It happens. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, but it is a very, like, Instagram versus reality kind of idea. It's like, we often put on this show, it's very performative of, like, everything's mm. fine. It's like, everything's not fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. No, hundred percent. Now, I I agree with all of that. I just I, I have two things which I want to say. The first thing is, I do think there's a discussion to be had in terms of what the trailer is selling you and what the film actually is, because the trailer for Promising Young Woman did sell you a sort of, you know, taking names, kicking ass type movie, and that is not what the film was. And a trailer should indicate to you, should tease you about what kind of film I think you're going to be watching and promising young women. I, yeah. I, I get, I, I get, I get why they, I get why they went the route that they did because it's a sexier route. Watching that sort of trailer will make you want to watch the film more than the trailer, which uh, indicated more of what promising young women was about, which is about grief. And I get that, but I do think there's a d- discussion to be had about those two things. The other okay, thing I would just say let's that- Let's discuss it then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> Go ahead. I, I, like I have a rebuttal. <laughs> no, because I get that. And, I, and I, I, understand, I understand that perspective. And I actually think you're right. I think mm. trailers do have a responsibility to try and like give you an idea of what it is. But mm. uh, when in the trailer did it show her wielding like- um, like a, a like a, a train store or did you see any blood or or anything like that I think it wasn't you know it was it was playful it was like yeah she's going after him but I don't I I didn't think that she was going to be there I didn't get impression that she was going to be like going around killing guys I just thought is uh, yeah I don't know I don't I don't think I think we we put our assumptions I think we saw mm. it in that way because we assumed it was going to be this revenge villa so we interpreted some of the scenes in it but um yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think I think I think you're right. Maybe they could have been a bit more. But then again, it's a trailer that's literally two minutes condensed, yeah. and actually the film is the film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, yeah. like my thing with marketing, like Emerald Fennel didn't cut that trailer. Like 
I, I, I feel like sometimes with film criticism, we have a tendency to like see marketing as an extension of the audit's mm. vision, which I heavily disagree with. And I've seen so many instances where the discourse around a film has sort of <laughs> taken, like the marketing has been part of the, the argument and it's like no 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 like marketing trailers posters like they're just like capitalism baby like it's not art it's just a way to sell the product and and to me like honestly I tend to not watch that many trailers especially for Mm. things like this I don't think I watch the trailer for this because of Mm. stuff like that because it's just it's just an ad it's just a piece of advertising it's not it's nothing to do with the film really and and <laughs> I don't know, I don't want to be mean to be like, it's all on us, baby. <laughs> but if I feel <laughs> yeah. like it kind of is. Like, I feel like if we as an audience are coming into a movie with a very, very strict idea of what it should be because we saw a trailer, because we saw a poster, I feel like that's more an audience problem versus mm. anything Emerald Fennel needs to worry about. Because, yeah, again, she didn't, yeah. she didn't make any of it. She passed it off to the... Uh, Mm. she passed it off to Cameron Diaz who as we all know from the holiday she has a trailer editing team John Krasinski's there (laughs) exactly that that, that's what happened you know it's completely Um. different like artists I'm not gonna be sorry to trailer people but like you know they're not artists (laughs) putting together this like you know great piece of they don't care they don't care about Mm. the themes it's not their job to care about the themes it's their job to be like how do we sell this (laughs) And this is a disclaimer <laughs> to Fade Black listeners. The views of Clarice are not representative. Trailers still do a great job. And sometimes you see a real awesome trailer and it's still a skill set, but you're not like mm-hmm. making a short film. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm trying to diss right. on people. And, and, and also, the minute you watch that film and you see the first predator thing situation mm-hmm. go down, that should have been enough said, okay, that's not that movie. <laughs> this is what the film is. And now you have to go with it. Put mm-hmm. now, put that idea aside, because I think the minute you see the first one, you can kind of get an idea where this is going. And actually it's not the jazzy revenge fantasy. You know, it's not, you know, that sort of thing. It's something else. But but Amon, you had a second point and I'm ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> the only other thing I was going to say is just, and it's just an example of why I love Promising Young Women so much. The fact that it can do a massive tonal shift towards rom-com and that and it works as well as it does it's just ballsy and impressive as hell to me like i was really into it and you know i'm not gonna say what happens but i was just really into that relationship when they decided to go there and with bo burnham yeah with bo burnham and that's just a mark i was really impressed by that Mm-hmm. I thought I read an interview with um, it was Vulture interview Emerald Fennell and Angelica Bastian who did it and she said yeah. and Emerald said that if if that that opening with Adam Brody oh Steph Cohen oh, I love you. Oh, I <laughs> the kid detective by the way he's in is really good and it came out well before we did but anyway I digress but if you'd have seen this could have been the start of a romantic comedy as in hey this girl's drunk he's gonna go and he's like he's not gonna touch he's gonna wake wake up in the morning it's like oh my god you rescued me it's like that's how it could go and that's how easily it can twist into something that is totally 
scary, like really mm -hmm. a horror story. And I just, yeah, I think it's that it had, it was really good at doing the different tonal switches throughout. So you're right there. So, I mean, I feel like we're all going to have the same answer by are we gonna stream or skip? I'm gonna stream. It's on Sky Cinema um, now. Um, I'm mm -hmm. definitely gonna stream it. I'm gonna watch it again, and you guys should too. Yep. Also streaming. Uh, I might watch it again before Oscars night. Uh, Emerald Fennell and Promising Young Women are for quite a few awards, so be interested to see what goes down. She has a very good BAFTAs night, by the way. She did a red night yeah. hotel room. I, uh, now that I've said stream it, I don't think the promising young woman was better than the film. <laughs> that, that, I don't think it should have won. So controversial, <laughs> controversy. <Interesting>. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I would also concur. Stream. I, the one thing I would add is a little bit of a trigger warning. It's hard because you know, I mm. everyone's gonna have a very different reaction to this movie. But as I mentioned before, it is incredibly upsetting. So if you're worried about it, just do take some caution with it. But mm -hmm. I think it is a, I think it is a brilliant, brilliant film. And I'm just incredibly glad that I watched it. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the bathers, it is time for our... Hot takes! Ow, I burnt myself on the power of cinema. <laughs> Pedro, come back. Pedro, where are you? Come back. <laughs> Heal this wound. Heal this wound with your little magical Grogu. That's Grogu. Help me, Daddy. I, I am part of a few WhatsApp groups with Clarice, and let's just say there are a lot of Pedro Pascal messages on Bathroom Night. Okay, let's not expose uh, me. <laughs> I'm trying to. Keep, I'm trying to be professional in the professional space, so we're, we're professional. Not on me. <laughs> So last weekend at the BAFTAs, the Best Actor and Actress Awards went to Anthony Hopkins and Frances McDormand for their respective performances in The Father and Nomadland, but unfortunately for viewers, both were a no-show. In the age of Zoom, should nominees make an effort to show up? Hannah, what say you? Well, I don't think there's anything more demoralising than losing an award to a stock image. <laughs> it... <laughs> um... Yeah, that was like super awkward when Anthony Hopkins um, won. Because you just look there and it's like there was Riz was there and oh my God, I've forgotten all the other nominees. But anyway, I just cared about Riz because I think Riz should have maybe won. Um, I mean, Chadwick Bosman obviously had one, but obviously there's a obvious excuse why he's not there. Whereas like I felt with Anthony Hopkins, I was like, oh, he's, is it just he's like a bit old now and he thought, oh, I don't want to do these things anymore, so I won't. But then <laughs> it was when I woke up the next day and then saw him on, um, saw a piece like saying, oh, yeah, he did an interview on BBC News or something. And it's like, yeah, I was just painting. I found out from my neighbours <laughs> that I won. And that was for me, it was like, hold up a minute. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are in a Zoom situation now, and I feel like um, if, you know, if, you, if you're if you're Francis McDormand, I feel like, time difference whatever maybe she didn't want to do it it's in the U this is a UK award ceremony maybe I can, can forgive her for not wanting to do that because it's like time zones and all that but I thought maybe she could you know record a film just in case like you used to being mm -hmm. in front of the camera babes like just do a quick 30 seconds thank you in case and then it's you know if not just delete it delete from your phone done but I think with Anthony Hopkins it was like oh um so you were you could have just like 
zoomed in for a bit and collected it. But then, you know, I'm going to be too harsh on him. Apparently his excuse that he didn't think he would win. And, you know, I think that's an attitude that I had. I didn't think he would win either, even though I think he's great in the father. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think I think it's, I think, you know, the idea that everyone should have to go to awards just because they're nominated. But I think it was just, it's just a bit disappointing when you see people sat down for Zooms, ready to go, waiting, and like the kind of disappointment, like Tahariri and Riz Ahmed, like just there, and it's like, oh, okay. And then it's like there wasn't a recorded message in case. I think that maybe people could be a bit better that way, but that's just me. Have the ISRI care? They're all do it. Do it <laughs> I I get I get everything that you're saying, but at the same time, it's like awards are a bit silly though, and like if, I mm-hmm. feel like if if Anthony Hopkins does, if he wants to paint paint um how mind like you know i think it's it's great when people want to be there and they want to win the award and they give a great speech but if somebody's like not really feeling it and they don't really want to, have to go up and do the whole i want to thank my agent i want to thank like the producers of this movie then you know it's fine if you haven't got anything to say like i'm i'm chill with it i'm cool do what you want um barry keegan had his dog and that's all that mattered his beautiful dog <laughs> coda coda yeah he let me know on twitter that his dog's named coda like it, like it was cool that the people who turned up turned up and i'm all happy for them and i hope they had a great night in their respective beautiful london hotels but I, I don't know. I just I can't force myself to care about this issue because um, awards are, awards are quite silly. They're quite silly. I'm sort of with you, Clarice. Like for for purely selfish reasons, I would have liked them to show up because you know I like seeing uh, big actors on screen at big events, and um, you know the mingling between other stars is how you get great memes like the ones from the Golden Globes all those all those years back like Brad Pitt and what have you because the stars sort of showed up and you know that that was fun to see but yeah Meme with Brad Pitt's non-Oscar campaign that he clearly was campaigning for <laughs> it's like oh I'm just gonna happen to be photographed with Jennifer Aniston outside I'm gonna be mean it's like oh get out of it <laughs> his jokes were funny though Brad. he was funny so Anthony Hopkins Francis McDormand these guys have like they've been around the block a few times I don't mind it if they don't show up this one time um, Frances McDormand, I think, had a pretty good excuse in that she was doing like a cross-country trip and there was sort of time differences and whatnot. And Anthony Hopkins uh, painting. Okay. <laughs> you do you, man. Just you know, make sure that I get to see what you're actually painting at some point and we're good. Uh, <laughs> I, was only nig- I was only niggled by it because he did yeah. that thing the next day. And it's like, oh, so you can dress up for this, Anthony, can you? When yeah. you win. Because yeah. also it's like... I think what it is as well, it's like you have to, those guys had to lose on screen. Like, that's what I mean. It's like, yeah. there's the kind of indignity of like having to sit there with a braid mm. face and lose. And it's like, oh, you thought that you were going to lose. So you don't have to do that. It's like, but they had to do that. And yeah. I think it's like, this is all part of the promotion of your film. And, and again, I know it's a bit too hard, but I think it's like, it's kind of, yeah. that's the game that you play. This is what, this is what mm-hmm. part of making movies is. And I don't know, just because of that, that's my only occasion. I thought, Francis, yeah, she's yeah. free to roam. Get in Vanguard <laughs> and do what you want. I, I do totally get that. And I would say that were this the Oscars, I can't imagine them doing this. I'd be very surprised if they were to do something similar for the Oscars. And I'm not what? sure what that says about Zoom. 
Well, yeah, then oh, no, 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 no. in terms it. of in terms of not showing up for yeah. Oscars. So what we're saying is, um, it's not that deep. <laughs> <laughs> I will give a shout. <laughs> Hashtag it's not that deep. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to shout out Morford Clark though, who absolute hero was on New Zealand time and woke up at yeah. one minute, it must have been ass o'clock in the morning she seemed exhausted and yeah. like this is the thing i don't i don't care or mind if people don't turn up but if people make that much effort to turn up you get a gold star yeah yeah, yeah. and speaking of I, I feel like i wanted to say it at the top but i didn't have a chance mm-hmm. but i'm gonna say it now what the fuck my octopus teacher how <laughs> i thought it was a joke <laughs> I thought it was a joke. I, I thought, like, what? That's like a nothing documentary. Like, like collective. <laughs> Did people not watch that movie? Full disclosure, I haven't seen My Octopus Teacher, but I have seen The Dissident. And that film, I thought, was great, not only in terms of what they're doing with the subject matter, but in terms of how they put it together. I thought it was very creative and very innovative. Uh, that would have gotten my vote my octopus was like a very long asmr track (laughs) (laughs) it's like it's just like it's like soothing it's like a soothing maybe that's why it won in the year of the pandemic people just want to watch a dude swimming with an octopus (laughs) and talking about himself (laughs) did you watch it clarice no, to be honest, I prefer, I almost don't want to watch it because in my head, there's a little octopus at a chalkboard, like teaching this guy. <laughs> oh, I wish. I wish. But there we go. Before we go, are there any uh, last minute uh, additions? Any, anything else that you want to tell the people? I also watched uh, the new Naomi Kawase movie, True Mothers, which was a little bit strange because she's adapting a book in this. So it was a lot more structured than usual. Uh, It's about sort of uh, parents, they they adopt a kid and then the birth mother comes in and complicates things. And usually like her films are quite, just fluid and lovely and you're enjoying nature and beauty and beautiful things and there was a lot of that still in there but there's this sort of extra layer of melodrama that I would say like watch it if you've seen her stuff and you like it but if it's your first maybe go watch like Sweet Bean or something instead like don't let this be your introduction to her (laughs) 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 I'm warning you (laughs) (laughs) we know where you live we'll find you And on that note, that is it for this week. Thank you for tuning in uh, and do enjoy another week of viewing via whatever medium is safest for you. Uh, Do subscribe, rate, and leave us a review if you love the podcast and tweet us if you have something you'd love for us to shout out next week. Uh, Use the hashtag FadeToBlackPod and follow us. You can follow me uh, at AmonWoman. I'm at Clarice Lou. And I'm at Hannah Flint. Farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black.